thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Cape Talk. The world of science with Dr. Chris Smith, the naked scientist. He is the naked scientist indeed and is here to answer all of your science related questions. Chris, lovely to have you on the other end of the line. Good morning. Morning, Africa. We are paying quite a lot of attention to cannabis. Um, Parts of America are now starting to legalize it. We've got some interesting legal processes within the country where it's legal for you to grow your own uh, cannabis in the privacy of your home for your own use, obviously, not for dealing. Uh, There's a wonderful patch of land in Atlantis, which is up our west coast, that has been set aside by the city of Cape Town for the growing of cannabis for medical use. So there's quite a lot of work being done around, around this space. What is the earliest evidence we have of use of cannabis? Yep, interesting story out this week in the journal Science Advances. And what researchers have discovered is evidence of the oldest use of cannabis in some kind of ritualistic way. They've been excavating a cemetery which dates back 2,500 years. It's in China. It's the Jezankal Cemetery, which is up in the Pamir Mountains. And they've found traces of what are cannabis remnants in one of these fire pits in this cemetery and when they've analyzed these residues they're very high in the psychoactive ingredient for which cannabis is used tetrahydrocannabinol the thc and why they're saying this is interesting is that although there's documented evidence of having been of cannabis having been grown in east asia to a far as far back as about 4000 years not normally at the concentrations of thc that you see here And now this suggests that these people were using the plant for its psychoactive properties, but also that they may have bred these plants to have that high level of THC because they're clearly quite distinct and different from the ones that would have been around and dominating at the time. So the question, therefore, that the the archaeologists in this Science Advances paper are putting forward is, well, could it be that these people selected for variants of these cannabis plants and burned them and then inhaled the smoke because they realised that that gave them interesting effects or it changed their mood and so on? And did they grow these plants or did they help to select for plants that did have enriched levels of THC? Seems likely that they did. So this, this at the moment is the first recorded evidence of the earliest use of THC-rich cannabis, probably for ritualistic or certainly psychoactive purposes. Very interesting. And part of our debate in Cape Town at the moment, or at least in South Africa, is that the Medical Research Council is giving permission to people in this space who are obviously researching marijuana or cannabis for medical use to grow an element of it, which is obviously impossible, right? You have to grow the whole plant and then extract the element that you need to use for your medical research. Yes, because these compounds are usually, often many of these psychoactive plant compounds, they're very big, complicated molecules. They're very hard to just cook up in a test tube, which is why we usually rely on a plant to do that, because the plant cells go through many, many steps of, of, of their metabolism to produce the correct 
combination and also the correct chemical configuration of the chemicals to get the effects that we want. Now, THC is just one molecule. There are many molecules in the cannabis plant, many of them in the right sorts of combinations and in the right sorts of concentrations. So to say that it's just one chemical is an oversimplification. So researchers are growing the whole plant, getting the whole shooting match, because then we can explore all these different chemicals and see how they work both individually but but critically also together. Because there are conditions which it might be possible to make better with some or all of these chemicals. And because they're hard to make, you grow the plant, you extract it from the plant much easier. Very interesting indeed. We're taking your questions now on 021-446-0567. And your first one this morning, Chris, is from a WhatsApp that says, why can you open the door of a helicopter or a small plane while it's in flight, but not do so with a big aeroplane? Probably because of the altitude at which they're flying. In a helicopter, the altitude you get to is not very high. And with the light aircraft, the altitude you get to is not very high. You're talking about, you know, 1,000 feet, a couple of thousand feet maximum. The change in air pressure between the ground and those altitudes is not appreciable. And so therefore, one doesn't have to worry about giving supplemental oxygen to pilots and so on, because the pressure of oxygen that you're breathing is going to be relatively high, going to be almost the same as ground level, no risk of passing out. The very high-flying jumbos and things and commercial airlines that carry passengers fly at very high altitude for several reasons, but one of them is that it's much more fuel efficient to fly at high altitude because you're encountering thinner air, and if you're encountering thinner air, you're doing less work against the atmosphere to move the air. There's less drag, therefore it costs you less in fuel, so it makes sense to go to a nice high altitude. The downside is the altitude they're flying at, which is roughly the same height as the top of Mount Everest, um, which is you know 29,000 feet, when you're up at those sorts of altitudes, the partial pressure of oxygen that's pushing oxygen into your blood, although there's still 20% oxygen there, the number of oxygen molecules is much lower, so you can't survive at that altitude. So they pressurise the inside of the aircraft. They pressurise it to an altitude corresponding to about 8,000 feet. And this means it's a good compromise between not having such high pressure that the aircraft is too heavy and you have to over-engineer it so that it can take that pressure, but it's not too high a pressure, sorry, it's not too high altitude equivalent that it would start to cause people to feel uncomfortable. The downside of pressurising the interior of the aircraft is that that means that if there is a failure structurally, a window goes out or a door goes out, you would have sudden precipitous loss of cabin pressure and suddenly people wouldn't be able to breathe properly, which is why you get this drill about oxygen mass dropping down and so on. So you mustn't open the windows and doors of a passenger aircraft when it's at altitude, but on the ground, of course, where it's equivalent pressure between the ground and the inside of the aeroplane, that's absolutely fine. Chris, a question from a listener asking, why is it that when water boils, it makes bubbles? What's happening when you put a pot or a kettle onto the stove is that you're providing energy from the stove surface, whether that's an electric ring or, say, a flame. This is making the bottom of the cooking pot or the kettle hot, or if you're using an electric kettle, the element is very hot. The heat is going into the water molecules. When you give water molecules enough energy, you break the bonds that are holding them together so that instead of a liquid, you now have a gas water vapour, steam, and this takes up a lot more volume than the corresponding liquid does. So you end up with a bubble of gas. The bubble is biggest next to the heat source, which is the bottom of the pan or the element, and as it moves up through the water, it loses energy to the surrounding water, and therefore the bubble shrinks 
and then it collapses violently. And this is why when you first start a pot or kettle boiling on the stovetop, then it makes those rumbling, thumping noises because those are big bubbles forming and they very quickly rise up, meet cold water, give all their extra heat away. The steam inside the bubble collapses back to liquid again and the bubble goes thump. So that's why you get both the bubbles forming and you get the interesting noise. Uh, is there any trick one can use to know when water actually gets to a certain temperature? Because uh, I know, for example, as, uh, you know, when you when you go to tea making emporiums, they'll tell you you must serve tea at a particular centigrade um, uh, sort of degrees Celsius uh, measurement, as opposed to at boiling point, which will be a hundred degrees Celsius. Well, obviously, the the thermometer is your best friend here. And there are various ways of measuring temperature with a thermometer. There are the old-fashioned thermometers where you have a glass tube and it has a material in it which, when it gets hot, that material expands and climbs up a thin capillary inside the thermometer, and, and that's a measure of temperature. If you want to be really, really precise, you can buy an infrared thermometer. And this looks at the infrared rays coming off of a heat source, and the hotter something is the more infrared it gives out, so higher intensity, and also the wavelength, the distance between the waves of the infrared changes as well. And by reading those parameters, you can work out very accurately what the temperature of something is. That's how we know when we look up into the heavens, for instance, what the temperature of distant objects is. We don't actually physically have to go and stick a thermometer into them. We can look at the emissions of light from them, and that tells us something about their temperature. Now, the thing about water and why it's such a wonderful cooking material is that Water has this property that it boils at what we define as 100 degrees centigrade, 100 degrees Celsius, depending upon how you want to use the language. And at that temperature, it turns from a liquid into a gas, but the temperature will not increase any further until all the liquid has turned into a gas. So you don't get steam at more than 100 degrees. So you'll get water at 100 degrees, it will boil at 100, the temperature will not continue to climb Once all the water's gone, you've got steam, and you could continue at that point to add energy to steam, and the steam would get hotter, but you don't get the same thing until all the water's turned into steam. And this is called a phase change, when it goes from liquid into a gas. The same thing happens with ice, actually. If I put water in the freezer and I cool it down, then it will get to the freezing point, and it will not continue to drop in temperature until all the water turns into ice, and then the temperature will drop more. And this is because it's soaking up and all of the energy that I, that I put into it or take away from it in those settings, and it's using that to drive this phase change between being a liquid and a gas or a liquid and a solid, and once that's all used up, if you like, then it starts to change temperature. It's a very interesting phenomenon. Very interesting indeed. Aisha is in Lansdowne. Aisha, very good morning. What's your question for Chris? Good morning, Africa and Chris. Uh, my question is about people who sleep on their side, so side sleepers. Is it better to sleep on your left or right? I think I read somewhere once that sleeping on the wrong side um, could possibly put strain on some of your organs like your heart. So left or right, which is better for side sleepers? Interesting. Chris? Hello, Aisha. Which side do you sleep on? I think they're right, but I sort of tend to fall back over in the middle of the evening on my back. (laughs) Back sleeper. So I won't ask if you snore because that would be rude. But the bottom line here is that any position that's consistent with a good night's sleep for an individual is the best position in which to sleep. And the reason I say that is that sleep is very important. We underestimate how important it is to our health and well-being. And if you don't get a good night's sleep, you tend to perform less well at everything the following day or in the following weeks. So whichever position is, is giving you the best night's rest is the best position to sleep in. But 
people have looked at whether posture, sleeping posture, sleeping position makes a difference to health and well-being. There's very flaky research on this. I did dig out some papers for a few years ago where researchers had looked at people who sleep on their front or people who sleep on their side, people who sleep on their back, and there was some vague suggestion that people dreamt more if they slept on one side or the other or they had more vivid dreams in one position or the other. The numbers were really small. It led to me being quite sceptical of, of to whether this was a real phenomenon or not. And so I think probably it's best to wait until there's a bit more evidence on this because really the science doesn't stack up as to why there should be a difference. The only thing I can think of in terms of overall health is that if you look at the anatomy inside the body, the main blood vessels that bring blood back to the heart are on one off to one side because the heart's on the left and therefore the main blood vessels run up up and down the left-hand side. Now, if you've got say a pregnancy, you should be you might you might find that uh, you sleep better on one side because if you lie on your back, then what happens is that the pregnancy pushes down on the main blood vessels and this can make legs swell more. It can it can reduce the flow of blood back up to the heart a bit, which can actually encourage that phenomenon. So sleeping on your side under those circumstances takes some of the weight off of the blood vessels and that can reduce the symptoms of things like ankle swelling in late stages of things like pregnancy so that's the only exception to that but in terms of, of having a good restful night's sleep and whether or not it makes a difference to how restful your night's sleep is I, I don't think posture makes very much of a difference but if anyone knows different I please do tell me Please do indeed. Aisha, thank you very much for that. Um, the body, though, will wake you up in the middle of the night if it's under distress, right? So if you've blocked a, a vessel, for example, and it's causing a bit of a buildup, it will send a signal to your brain and say, hey, wake up so that you can turn around or something. We do naturally change our position at night, and we do that for a number of reasons partly to get comfortable, but also because if you laid in one position continuously all night long, the part of your body that you're laying on would end up devitalised because the blood pressure in the very small blood vessels that, that supply things like your skin and the muscles that you're laying on are very tiny. They're just small capillaries and the pressure is very small in these blood vessels and this means if you applied pressure by laying on or sitting on your bum in one position the entire time you could potentially stop the flow of blood through that bit of tissue and this would obviously rob that part of the body of adequate oxygen delivery, sugar delivery and you'd get a build-up of bad things there. If you do lay in one position all the time, you can get something called a pressure ulcer. And we sometimes see patients in hospital, if they're not being properly cared for, if they've, or if they've been looking after themselves at home and, and not been adequately mobile, they get these pressure sores. And your, your body defends against that by making you move around enough uh, during the day and at night so this never becomes a problem unless you have some other kind of physical disability or, or something similar which prevents that, that reflex kicking in and protecting you. The World of Science with Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. Chris, your next question is from Vivian in Lakeside. Good morning, Vivian. What's your question for Chris? Morning. On still cold mornings like it has been, was this morning, why does a frog rise from the water of a, of a lake or a say into the air? Good morning, Vivian. It has Vivian. been very cold in Cape Town, mm. Chris. I've seen this, and you sometimes see this in, say, a swimming pool. When a person takes the cover off the swimming pool in the early morning and the swimming pool is lovely and warm and the air above the swimming pool is not, it's cold, and it looks like the water is, is boiling. In fact, the water is warm, but it's not boiling. But there is steam coming off. Why is this? The reason is that when something, a body of water, is warm, there is energy in there to give it warmth. 
And when you have energy, you've got particles jostling around. Some of the particles will, by chance, have enough energy, they're jostling sufficiently hard that they can break apart from their neighbours and break the attractions that are holding them to their neighbours in the liquid and they become a single isolated molecule of water. And we call that steam, that's what water vapour is. So if you have something like a swimming pool that's nice and warm or a lake that's nice and warm or the ocean surface that's relatively nice and warm, you will continuously be losing water molecules off the surface as vapour. But on a very cold morning, that vapour quickly meets air above the water surface, which is at very low temperature. So this abundance of water molecules, which are in the vapour phase, suddenly see this cold air. They give away all of their, or a lot of the energy that they're carrying. And this means that they then have have less energy so they can come back together again and form water droplets again, just above the water surface. And it's that giving away of their energy to the air, because the air is cold, that makes the water condense in that way. So what you're seeing is water vapour forming from uh, isolated, or water droplets forming, which is fog, from water vapour that's coming off of a body of warm water. Why is the water still warm? Because water has a really high specific heat capacity. In other words, you have to take away or give a lot of energy from or to water to change its temperature by only a tiny amount. So even though the air changes in temperature radically overnight, because water's got this amazingly high heat capacity, it stays warm regardless overnight. So relative to the air in the morning, the water's still very warm. Ramsey, Ramsey rather, is in Claremont. A very interesting question for you, Ramsey. Hello. I, um, I just wanted to ask you something. I was watching some uh, UFC fighting last night, uh, cage fighting. And uh, one of the guys got knocked in the eye and his eye had swollen up halfway. And experienced fighters know they mustn't blow their nose after they've, they've been hit in, in, in the eye. And this guy then blew his nose and uh, that made the eye swell up more. Can Chris perhaps explain what happened to, to make the eye swell up more after he blew his nose? Certainly the most interesting question of the morning, Ramsey. Thank you very much, Chris. I must admit I've never been asked that, but I'm therefore going to have to speculate. And if someone knows better, do let me know, because I'd have to have more of a think about this than just the the short time we've got this morning. Uh, What I do know about eye anatomy is that there is a tear duct which goes from the inner lower eyelid, where the eyelid meets your nose, down into your nasal cavity. And when you produce tears in the eye, they flow across the eye surface and they drain down this small hole into the tear duct and are then deposited into your nose and you swallow those tears. If you are injured in the eye or you have some kind of infection in that duct system, it can be problematic. So it's possible that that if the person has been punched really hard, they could have disrupted their tear duct system. And if they blow their nose, then they're applying a very high pressure from the nasal cavity, which could direct muck from the nasal cavity up into the tear duct system, which normally is protected by by pressure changes and and various aspects of the anatomy. And that could lead to further obstruction and infection. So I'm going to speculate that the reason that they're being told don't blow your nose under those circumstances is because you could expel things that shouldn't be there up into your tear duct system and and cause longer standing infection and other anatomical problems. So that that I'm going to guess is is the reason. But if anyone who's especially an ear, nose and throat surgeon can tell us why if a boxer gets a black eye, don't blow your nose too hard. Or if indeed that's true, do let us know. Fascinating question. It is indeed. Okay. And, and, and Ramsey, before I let you go, did, did you literally see the boxer's uh, 
eye swelling up almost instantly because that's the question yeah. I want to ask uh, well, Chris. Was he, he got knocked in his eye and his eye had swollen up a little bit and then he, the, those guys know they mustn't blow their nose after they've been hit. And he did that and in an instant his eye had just closed up completely. You could actually see, visibly see this guy's eyes closing up. And that's the interesting bit, isn't it, Chris, that it almost happens instantly? Well, obviously, when you blow your nose hard, the pressure that you apply is very high because you're basically forcing a lot of air out again from your lungs against a very small cavity because you tend to hold your nose when you blow your nose and therefore you build up a lot of pressure in the nose. The reason we do this when we're wanting to clear our nose is that that pressure difference between inside and outside expels whatever the blockage is. But if that's all being deflected up an injured uh, tear duct, then that that would obviously cause things to change very radically because fluid's going to accumulate in the tissue and other muck is going to accumulate in the tissue. So that's probably why it would happen quite so quickly. hope his eye's okay now. <laughs> I hope his eye's okay indeed. Thank you very much, Chris. Do you enjoy the cricket? Um, even though the rain is not making it possible for much cricket to be played at the various ovals in the UK. We'll chat again next week. All right. Thanks, Africa. Thanks, everyone. See you soon. Bye-bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.